Hello listeners, here's your Patreon update for the week. On Pillow Talk this week, we are talking about the Tunguska event. What is that? Well, you'll have to listen to Pillow Talk to find out. <laughs> Tunguska it is. Very good. <laughs> but uh, I was reflecting and thinking that, you know, Pillow Talk in many ways is my way of fighting back against the purity movement. Here I am, mm-hmm. cuddling with the person that I love, recording a podcast about it. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, you know, that's fair. That's fair. And are, are you doing other things while you cuddle with Ian? How else are you resisting the purity movement? Ooh. No, we can cu- we can cut that out. That'll be for a pillow talk after hours. After one day, hours. One day will happen. Yeah, but listeners, this episode does talk about the purity movement. We, we are reading a purity movement book. Um, and so that involves brief discussions of child sexual abuse and sexual violence and other things of that nature. And so if you're not interested in that... Please skip this one this week. But other than that, I think it's a good discussion. Yeah, I I liked it a lot. It was fun. It's one of those bananas books that reading it in a post-Trump world makes you go, "Mm, so they've always wanted to take over. (laughs) (laughs) It's always been like this. Yep, yep. So uh, enjoy that, listeners. And now here's the show. One, two, five, nine. Robin, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Beth McKinney back with us, our purity expert, uh, to talk about a different purity book this time. It's called And the Bride Wore White by Dana Gresh. Dana Gresh? Dana Gresh. Dana Gresh. Uh, And it was a different experience than the last one we read, so I'm excited to dig into it. But Beth, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, good to hear you all again. Good to hear you. Uh, for our listeners, will you give us like your 20-second elevator pitch of who you are? Hi, so I'm Beth McKinney. Um, Joe's being very generous in describing me as an expert on purity. I'm uh, <laughs> going into second year PhD at UVA. I'm uh, a student along with Ethan, um, so that's how we know each other. I, hmm, I'm more in the religious ethics track, so I'm not necessarily reading these texts looking for like their historical trajectory or their like rhetorical content, although that obviously plays a role, but I'm really interested in how these people construct what they view as an ethical approach to sexuality and thinking about then how do you sort of take seriously what their worries are and also try to figure out what their worries really are. Cause sometimes they're, there are, you know, <laughs> can only take people at their word so far. Um, but really trying to engage with what the ethical concerns underneath the purity movement are in order to try to imagine something better. Mm. Okay. I, and I'm sure that you've explained that before, but I like that. I like that way of approaching uh, this material for sure. What was the question I had? Oh, have you, I have asked Ethan this already and he is not, have you read Jesus and John Wayne? I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was your opinion on it? Thoughts about it? I I am in the process of reading it, which is why I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah, I find it's a really great resource. Um, I think Kristen Kobes-Dumay has done a really great job of just being so thorough in compiling the history. Um, It's a really great, like, I would say even reference text, right? If you're someone who's interested in studying Mm -hmm. um, like gender in American Christianity, I I found it just an excellent source for whatever like subtopic you're interested in, you're going to find something in there to at least be a jumping off point. Yeah. That has been my experience so far as well as it was this, um, 
I liked the framing of the book so far, but I also really liked uh, that I knew I could dig deeper into what was there. So mm-hmm. cool. As somebody who like studies things like this, I wanted, because I remember it came out and there's this whole big hullabaloo and I was like, well, I'm not going to read this book because I'm a cool kid. Um, and now I'm like, oh, this book actually has a lot going for it. <laughs> oh, interesting. I'm curious what the, the criticism was then that you were hearing. I wasn't really hearing any criticism. I was hearing a lot of people being very enthusiastic about it. Oh, so this was your I'm not like other girls moment. Yeah. I'm not really like this and I want to be different. Yeah, yeah. I was the girl like in uh, elementary school when it was NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. I was like, I listened to the Beatles, the original boy band. <laughs> what a dick. That's that's awful. <laughs> you, could was... been like, you could have been like, I listened to O-Town. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, oh, gosh, anyway, I was like, there's so many directions I could go here. All of them are bad. So let's just acknowledge that little me was trying very hard in the world she was given. But yeah, no, there were a lot of people who were like, this explains everything. And oh my gosh. And, and I was, I thought it was like a memoir because I was like, nothing with that catchy of a title is an actual well-researched book. And then I was proven very wrong. So yeah, listeners, if you get to the end of this episode and you're like, man, I think everything about the world is on fire, uh, go read Jesus and John Wayne and understand where the fire came from. It'll be great. Beth, do you want to uh, tell us, give us kind of a quick synopsis of this book? I'll let you take the podcast, go whatever direction you want to go with it. Sure. Yeah. So I think first it might be helpful to have a little bit of background on who Dana Gresh is. Her name does rhyme with Hannah. In the, in the sort of prep work for this, um, because I think Dana, Dana doesn't get talked about as much as some of these other people like Joshua Harris, right? Who like everyone, everyone in the deconstruction world kind of knows who Joshua Harris is and probably even Elizabeth Elliot. Dana Gresh is kind of right between uh, the two of them. She's really influenced by Elizabeth Elliot and she's a mentor to Joshua Harris. And I, in looking to see like, are people even talking about her? I, in the... The, the Fundy Snark subreddit, um, there's like three <laughs> posts about her from two years ago. That's it. Um, people in the comments were asking, also asking, how do we pronounce this name? Is this Dana, Dinah? It, it is uh, Dana Gresh. Um, so she's a, a fund- fundamentalist writer. She's been around since like the height of the purity movement in the 90s. You know, she went to a Bible college. She met her husband there, Bob Gresh. Um, she is really exemplary, I think, of this trend that some people will sometimes point out about conservative Christian women who are very um, like active in the church in a very public way. Um, so if you like look at her site, she like describes herself as like, I'm a mother and a wife first. And she does this thing where she kind of frames herself as like the model submissive um, pure Christian wife. Um, but it's really clear that she's kind of the driver in the relationship. Um, hmm. I would lovingly describe Bob Gresh as a little bit beta. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel that. I feel that. Um, he's good. Like he supports her career. He does, he does his own things, like the ministry along with her, they work together a lot, but um, she really is the, like the outgoing one and the, the sort of, um, engaged in like public facing ministry. Which is funny because in the book, she describes him as she describes herself as being really introverted and she needs her husband to be very extroverted and funny. So yeah, it's interesting. They have those opposite careers. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot we could say about how Dana presents her personal life in this book um, and how she doesn't present it. Uh, something I something I notice as a trend in this book and just other things that other public appearances and other writings she's put out is that she, and this will be important, I think, when we talk about um, testimony as a, a tactic that conservative Christians use, right? Um, she does this thing where she will seemingly tell a personal story and seem like she's getting very confessional, but she kind of pulls back at the very last minute and doesn't yes. actually give you a, a, like, she isn't really disclosing. She's flirting with the line of disclosure. I was going to say it's, it's a real vulnerability tease. Yeah. yeah. I have like no idea what she actually did with that first boyfriend that she's so um, cagey about, but like, Oh, and I'll, I'll get into it later, but I think she's really able to use that vagueness as a tactic. Yeah. I, oh, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I would have expected if she was, if she had gone all the way with this boyfriend, mm-hmm. that she would have like said that, you know, and would have been like, listen, God forgave even this sin. Cause that's, that's a weird thing about this book is it's actually very forgiving. If you've made a mistake, you just have to like recommit to the purity thing. So yeah, I don't, I mean, does this boyfriend even exist? <laughs> There were moments in this book where I was like, Dana, you're lying to me. I know I can tell that this is a lie. (laughs) You just made this up. So, yeah, I wonder about the existence of this boyfriend and this thing. Yeah. That's funny. Sorry. Sorry. I I was just going to, I'm so sorry about, I was just going to say, yes. Like that is one of the things that I also am wondering about throughout this book is surely some of this can't be real. Right. Like, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. But like even the some of the statistics she's using and then citing. Yeah. I, I have to be like, you, you're in some way misrepresenting this. Right. An early statistic she pulled was on um, uh, uh, attitudes towards abstinence and, and slash safe sex education. Mm-hmm. And, and she pulled this kind of insane statistic that she cited and that I'm like, I'll have to look, I kind of want to look at it where it's like, um, like some like 86% of teenage girls are against safe sex education because they believe it'll promote casual sex. And I'm like, well, that's, that can't possibly be true. (laughs) Yeah. She's, she's not, very great about the citation practices are a whole thing on its own to talk about here, right? The sort of use of like very selective information. Um, yeah. The one thing I want to say about the the boyfriend though, is I, I guess reading Gresh's like charitably as I can, um, I think it's possible that whatever she ended up doing with this boyfriend, she feels a lot of shame about. And that sure. makes it very difficult. Maybe even to a level that like, I'm just remembering what it felt like to be a teenage fundamentalist, right? And how mm-hmm. um, sin is so shameful, especially like sin to do with like romance or sex is like so shameful that you just like can't even let yourself really think about it directly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, maybe she is just lying to us, but I, I wonder if also she just is very embarrassed about whatever happened or uncomfortable with whatever happened with this boyfriend. Yeah. I, maybe before we dig into the book, let me tell you the story in my life that kept on coming to my mind as I was reading this book. 
because I, you know, grew up purity culture, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I worked at a Christian summer camp, not a denominational Christian summer camp. And there was a guy on camp staff that I had like a huge crush on. Like he was the love of my life. He was, I thought he was just such a godly guy. He played the piano. He was like so kind and so thoughtful and also very funny and very cute. This man is gay. He is fully like in a committed relationship with another man now he's like out here he's got like his phd he does like bible teaching he is also really deconstructed from the bullshit we learned but at the time like i know any of that right like i'm a teenager um but so i have this huge crush on this guy and it was because you know that's like the sin right to be attracted to a guy and be distracted by your crush while you're doing ministry for the lord with impoverished children um and so i like made it a bigger deal than what it was of course in my brain and so i did like one of the things she she suggests in this book which is to go talk to like a trusted female mentor and i was like i have this crush and it is just distracting me and i like i feel like maybe i need to step back from my duties as a counselor because i'm so distracted by this crush which was not true and not what was happening but like what i felt like i should say um and this trusted female advisor was like well a lot of people have crushes he's a cute guy but like i don't think this is that big of a deal <laughs> and i was like oh okay i'll like i'll try to deal with it um and at some point that got around to the camp director and the camp director was like, you know, if you can't stay focused, then you do really need to take a break. And so he like sent me home partway through a week of camp and was like, uh, yeah, no, like take some time, take some time to yourself. Um, which like could have been good. I, I guess good boundaries against like burnout, but that was not the situation. I was essentially fired from a week of camp because I had a crush. Yeah. Was he saying, were you actually like, looking back on it do you think you actually were distracted by this crush or like was it showing in any way or was it just that like he heard you had a crush and assumed you couldn't do your job then i looking back on it i absolutely was not distracted by this crush and didn't it did not affect my job performance at all <laughs> um i would say that like it definitely impacted my spiritual life in like a really real way right like my relationship with god was dependent upon my ability to put god first um, um, and I felt like by thinking of this guy, I was not thinking of God first. Yeah. Um, so it was a whole, but like, again, that's built on like the purity paradigm. Right. Um, anyway. So he was like, yeah, like go, go pray, spend a weekend to yourself. And so I don't know what was going through his brain in like sending me home. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think he heard that I had a crush and that I had expressed concern about it and was like, well, she should just go. And so then the next week, I wasn't allowed to be a counselor. I came back as kitchen staff and spent like the week in the kitchen scrubbing pots and pans. <laughs> oh, that's and then eventually I was allowed back to be a counselor. But like through all of this, like reading this book, I'm thinking like this is exactly the thing that got me like fired for a week. <laughs> you know, like and and throughout my whole life, I felt so much shame over having this crush on this guy. And it was it was the thing I prayed about over and over and over again. Wow. Did you ever actually talk to this guy or was this just like a crush from afar? Oh, no, we were uh, we actually were very good friends as camp staff. Um, one time the entire camp staff went on a retreat up to a mountain house and we went out and looked at the stars and we broke one of the rules in the book. We were horizontal. <gasps> 
<gasps> we were all like <laughs> laying on the blanket with the stars. Um, and we like, uh, it, me and the guy bumped hands and I was like, this is the best moment of my life, physical contact. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like there was that. But like I, embarrassingly, like after uh, my senior year of high school, I'm like at Carolina, I have my UNC email address. He's at Gardner-Webb, which is in Boylan Springs, North Carolina, which is a Christian school. And um, I send him an email and I like confess my undying affection for him in it. Um, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. I, like we're in these different places, but like, this is how I feel. Um, and he sent back an email that was very, very kind. And he told me that I had a beautiful soul and that we should just be friends. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. And like, since that time, like, I, we haven't spoken in years. Um, but like, I very much appreciate the person who grew up to be. I, uh, but like, yeah, it, it, in my teenage years, this person was like, both the object of my affection. And like, the reason I thought my spiritual life was falling apart when it super was not. So like, I, throughout this book, I'm like, I was trying to follow all of this lady's rules, even though like, I didn't read this book, but like, she's giving a great encapsulation of like what I gleaned from the purity movement. But also, if I could have just calmed the fuck down and been a normal fucking person, <laughs> then maybe uh, I, this would have not turned out to be what I spent 90% of my like mental capacity on in my like prayer life. I could have maybe had a, a well-rounded understanding of the world if I wasn't so focused on the fact that I had a crush. Yeah, well, maybe, but also that sounds just like a very teenage girl thing to me, right? And I think something about this yeah. book in particular is the way that it targets teenage girls and like takes what would just be normal, like, you know, it's exciting to have your first crush. It like, it makes sense that it's something you think about a lot, but it makes it pathological to where you become yeah. obsessed with it. Um, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I, I feel like we, our listeners probably already are familiar with uh, the purity movement. They kind of know, I'm assuming that like, we're talking about um, a movement that really emphasizes saving sex for heterosexual marriage as key to the Christian identity and as something that's really being pushed on teenagers. Um, and in particular, this book is saying like, in order to achieve that goal, you need to flee as far from sex as possible. Mm -hmm. so one other thing I want to highlight about this book and kind of where it falls in the purity spectrum is like, we're, we're targeting teenage girls. We're targeting really kind of preteen girls I want to say although she says like this book is like not age appropriate for her her young son at the point um I think he was like eight years old or something at the time hmm. um but a, a really key thing to this book is the emphasis on modesty as well right and so like girls being a temptation to boys right um so yeah I just kind of want to foreground that as like that's where we're at um this book I think what really sets it apart and why it's worth reading to understand the purity movement is the literal objectification of girls that happens, right? Like you hear this kind of brought up as a criticism of the purity movement a lot, that it objectifies girls, that it, you know, it treats them as, you know, you're like a piece of tape that might get less sticky if you have sex too often. That's metaphorically the same as being stuck to a lot of arms, right? Um, this right. book, I think, is where we really see that explicitly stated and where I think that kind of enters um, sort of the lexicon of, well, maybe not where it first appears, right, but where it's like the most sort of directly stated. They're not dancing around the objectification. 
Hmm. I'm interested to hear you. I don't know how we want to like go about talking about the book, but like I did not pick up on that in the book and I'm wondering like what I missed and like where it just went back into my already purity addled brain. And I was like, this mm. makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you take the quiz to find out whether you're a trashable styrofoam cup or a teacup? <gasps> I saw that in the sidebar and I was... Uh, uh, I just finished it right before the podcast, <laughs> everybody. So I did not, but oh my gosh. Yes. No, that's exactly what that is. Oh my God. Oh yeah. my God. Oh my God. Ethan, did you take the quiz? Are you a trashable styrofoam cup? Hell yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I wish I had it here so we could all take it together, but I will take a screenshot of it and put it on the Patreon so listeners can do it on their own if they want. Oh, this is a side thing, but uh, Dana Gresh is the queen of like both graphics and just unintentionally very funny subheadings. Yes, you are right. Yes. Not so, you again, Satan. Not you again, Satan. I think I had that as my banner on Twitter for a while. Yeah. There was one. There was one that I thought was very funny. Oh, it wasn't a, a subheading. So the other thing that's funny about this is if she doesn't have a really great subheading, she usually will quote from a book that has an incredibly unfortunate title. Mm. Um, what was it? Uh, there was one on parenthood and daughters that I think was called She Calls Me Daddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, Dana Gress, what are you doing? Oh I'm quoting from that book. In the margins of this book somewhere there, she's talking about like boys will pressure you to do things that are sort of sexual. They'll try to like, you know, push the line. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she even talks about like the, the apple or like the fruit of the, in the tree in the garden of Eden. But yes. in the margins, there's just a picture of an apple with the caption, just touch it. Right. <laughs> Because the snake lied to the woman and was like, maybe just touch it. And I'm like, you made that up, ma'am. That is not in the Bible. Oh, and she's not really clear. I don't know if you can see this in your version, Joe, but she literally, when she quotes scripture, it'll say author's paraphrase. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I that. And I was like, what is happening? I also want to point out that the only thing that she pulls from, like, anything that Jesus actually says is the parable of the pearl of great price, you know? And she only uses yeah. it because it's something that, like, she and her husband share with each other it's her use of scripture weird yeah. but also her paraphrase of scripture weird that that's yeah. a really good point it's improvisational that's what i always called it whenever i read it like mm. uh she'll she'll quote a piece of scripture or she'll talk about a particular story in scripture and not only is it a weird interpretation but like she'll change interpretations in three paragraphs Yes. Like, like it, it's all it's all sort of done as this like jazz improvisation mm -hmm. to kind of fit whatever. There's this moment uh, early on in the book where she's talking about the fall um, where she theorizes in this kind of weird throwaway line that um, maybe even Satan didn't know what would happen after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Right, which I think is fascinating. And like, let's talk about that. That's so much better than everything else in this book. But also, what are we supposed to do with that information? Yeah, yeah, it's all, but that's kind of what I mean. Like, like she's just using the story to just, I don't know, talk about something else like at the moment. And so like, if I'm sure if you would have pressed her on that, she'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm literally just bullshitting. Like, I don't even know, what does it mean to make a theological claim, right? Like, like that's or like that's sort of I don't think that's in her, her vocabulary but I was really struck by that like I reading it the first time I was like what is she trying to say here and I just think the answer is she's not really trying to say anything she's, she's filling just, up pages yeah she's just filling up pages and she's she already know like you could probably reduce this whole book to 20 pages yes you know everything else is filler I've read uh, recently because I've worked for two entrepreneurs who are both very good people and I appreciate you and please keep paying me. But um, the both of them have wanted to write books. And so I've had to read these like other books by entrepreneurs about how to write books or how to sell yourself or like any of that. And this follows the format of all of those books. She's got like seven things you need to know. And then she's got a lot of stories from people like who could be clients and I guess our clients because she runs like purity retreats but she also uses her personal story so you're engaged in what's going on and then a lot of it's fluff and filler and then those stupid reflection things at the end of the chapter (laughs) that I'm like why is this here so yeah yeah no it's fully following the blueprint of uh, it's following the blueprint of I need to write a book in order to like sell my workshop so here have Mm -hmm. a book yeah it's it's bananas how clearly it is that yeah, I think you're right that there's a lot of thinness here. Um, at the same time, there is a lot of weird theology happening, right? Like, it is really noticeable to me how much more active of an agent Satan is than Jesus. Like you said, Ethan, there's not really a lot of Jesus present in this text. There is a lot of Satan. And Satan is very interested. In, like, he's going to get you away from the herd. He's strategizing. Satan just really, really is trying to get you to... Um, be sexually active in any way that he can. And I don't know, that's such a fascinating um, approach. There's a, there, yeah, there's so much here that to me seems like barely even Christian. I know we talked a little bit about off, uh, off mic about the sort of Pelagian trends in this book as well, which um, mm-hmm. Ethan, you're probably more qualified than me to explain what Pelagianism is. Uh, yeah, I mean, probably not. I think all three of us can do it fine. But like it's listeners, Pelagianism is a heresy that basically works in the assumption that human beings have within them um, sufficient powers to resist sin and then cultivate like a righteous life without the need of like a supernatural grace or or God's intervention in Jesus. Um, Methodists are sometimes accused of being Pelagians, and they're wrong. But but yes, the the I agree with you, uh, Beth. There's there's a because Jesus sort of goes into the background, and is actually by I, I think theologically replaced by the notion of a God who is meant to be your spiritual father that yeah. fills a, a a boy shaped hole in your heart. Oh my God. Um, like there's a there's a moment in the book where she talks like that, but I think that I think that's supposed to be um, both a kind of like commentary on Christian social and fam- and family planning, 
and I think is meant to be a theological move where mm-hmm. where God's primary relationship to girls and women is um, their father that sort of has ultimate authority over them. But anyway, because Jesus fades into the background and Satan is there, it becomes a battle between you and Satan, which is inherently Pelagian. Yeah. Right. But then she does this weird thing where she pays lip service to the sinner's prayer. Like there's literally her version of the sinner's prayer in the book. And so and she says that like you need to have a relationship with God and you have to have God like help you through these moments of temptation. So, yeah, she's even though functionally it is you as a person fighting Satan and lust, uh, it's still like. She's like, oh, but remember, you're not doing this through your own power, so you have to pray about it. There's also the spiral. How much attention did y'all pay to that spiral diagram when she discussed it? Which one? You have to remind me. Is this the graphic on the side? Yeah, it was the graphic in the sidebar. Um, and it starts, there's a cross at the bottom, and then there's like this black ribbon. I mean, it's a black and white book. So there's this ribbon that kind of goes up in this big spiral. And at different moments in the spiral, there's like this like explosion of lust. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, and then at the top, there's like a crown that says purity. Ah, um, uh, yes. I see it now. The journey spiral. Yes, yes. And I was so pissed because I was like, well, this is, you know, this is how we talk about sanctification, though, you know, that like, most of your life is that journey toward like having the mind of Christ and like, you know, like Wesleyan ideas of Christian perfection, etc. And I was like, no, this actually is a little bit helpful, right? You do run into like the same things that separate you from God and others over the course of your life. And like, they do get easier each time like that, like that is just true. Like, I think that that's fair. And you're not a failure for running back into the same problem, because that's how life works. And so I'm like listening, reading this. And I was like, I would never use this diagram. This is not the most helpful, helpful way to explain explain it but it's so weird to see somebody talk about uh, anything in the spiritual life as a process from an evangelical you know that's not Mm. really how they function yeah there's a moment um there's a and i i'm curious because i I did not grow up methodist and so i'm not as well versed i think in your all's theology um so i have questions about that but there was a moment i noticed when Dana is trying to teach her readers how to hunt for a husband, right? She's mm. like, you could, and she's not going to put it that way, right? You're supposed to wait for a, a godly man will approach you, whatever. Um, but she does want you to kind of like think about the sort of list of traits that your eventual husband will have. So that way you don't, you know, you don't lead anyone on. You can say right off the bat, like, okay, it's not going to be you. So I'm not going to say yes to going out with you. And she doesn't say your list has to look exactly like hers, but it's kind of, it should be similar, right? There might be some superficial differences. Um, But something she puts on this list, you know, a list that includes things like, is physically fit, um, is a Christian, all the right things. Something she puts is she really wanted someone who was saved early. Like she has this idea that it's better to have been sort of raised Christian, basically, right? Basically be someone, she's not going to put it this way, but someone who was raised in a Christian household um, so that they were always Christian, that they never had any kind of um, phase before salvation, really, practically speaking. Um, To me, that really strikes me as just like, it it undermines the value of God's grace. It it also kind of objectifies men too, right? Another way, but like, it really struck me that that, to me, it seems to be 
be saying that, um, you know, someone who's becomes a Christian later in life is less than, and that God's grace doesn't really cover them in the same way. Yeah. I, um, in my brain here, here, Jessica, the tiny evangelical who lives in my brain, um, telling me that, no, it's just that they have a shared experience. And that like, whenever you are saved over the course of your life, it's all equal. We're all equal in the eyes of God, but they just Mm -hmm. have experience of living more of their life as a saved person and they can be more equally yoked which is all bullshit (laughs) i think it's implied that they're more likely to be a virgin right oh maybe yeah 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 which that's something else we could talk about is that there is this definitely falls in the like sexual prosperity gospel right like at this point in her career dana is pretty much outright saying that by saving sex until marriage, by being a virgin when you get married, you will then be blessed with this incredible sexual life. Like the whole meta, like the title metaphor, right? And the bride wore white, like she's opening with a story about how her wedding was so beautiful because she and Bob did things right. Uh, Which is obviously a story that's complicated by the boyfriend situation. But at one point she cites, what is it? She cites Deuteronomy 624, and interprets it to say that like virgins, people who get married as virgins are promised satisfying sex in their marriage life. Which is bananas and not at all what that passage is even beginning to refer to, right? Like the Bible does not say that. Yeah. It's also not clear that like like Dana is trying to sell her life as having been an example of this. And then we find out, and this is maybe a bit of a spoiler, is this in the I don't think this is in this book, but she'll later say that she and Bob were sleeping apart half the time in their first year of marriage, which says to me that they did not necessarily have like an easy transition to being sexually active as a married couple. Oh, that is interesting. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is funny that the beginning of the book is her talking about her husband's tan and how um, his his tan contrasts with the white shirt that he was wearing, and I of course wore this hand beaded dress um, with a with a row of violins at the front of the sanctuary. Like it's very I that prosperity is not just in um, what their sex life will be like, but it's in everything around them. Like they will they are blessed in every way because they were sexually pure and because they sacrificed for each other. Uh, and then she she says that too with childbirth and like with people who have had issues of uh, like fertility issues. She's like, you know, like that's when God makes you fertile is when you have been pure mm-hmm. when you are committed to your husband. But then at the same time, there are like abortions left and right in this book. So clearly yeah. people are still fertile when they have an extramarital sex. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's not, um, the book is very contradictory, like within itself because, mm-hmm. because there's no way for it to be, completely straightforward um that was the other the other thing about the book is that like i expected more lies more of satan's lies and i was like wait what lies are satan telling me like i i don't know exactly what i'm supposed to look out for in terms of satan's lies and then when she got to the last chapter and she was summing up the like seven rules for purity i was like oh right we did talk about all that but i like there, I, I was very confused by what I was supposed to take away from the book, other than being shamed about um, doing anything at all with a boy. 
there were a lot of little practical tips but yeah no it's like it's like she wanted to shove in all of like the things that she thought of into a book um and there was some structure to it but mostly it was stuff like don't be horizontal and um and write a list of like 10 ways that you can uh reject a boy's advances yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is she's trying to make the case for the purity imperative, right? Like, the, like the, this is why this is like a good thing to try to do. Um, she uses a lot of fear tactics. Um, yeah. And I want to say uh, Elizabeth Gish is a scholar who um, has read, has done an analysis of uh, Dana Gresh as well as other purity literature and refers to this as harm and damage rhetoric, right? So like where you get this sort of fear of, you know, if you will get pregnant when you don't want to, but you'll also lose your fertility. Um, you will definitely get STIs. There's no such thing as safe sex. None of these, like, the things they want to teach you in school to keep you safe are actually really dangerous and you should be afraid. Um, so, yeah, that's just a, that really feels to me more like the core message than anything practical. It's just mm. be afraid, avoid sex. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is what I mean when I say that everything is improvisational mm-hmm. because because there's because Beth I think you're exactly right there's one and and Joe you're saying this too there's there's one goal of the book right and that's conformity to this vision and of sexuality or this vision of sexual ethics and mm-hmm. uh, Dana Gresh is doing whatever she needs to do to sort of convince somebody of that and so she's able to say to, to contradict herself over and over and hold both of these things together. Yeah. Did, Beth, is that something that you've noticed in like all purity literature? Like it's always seems to try to, cause that was something we saw as well in the Everyman's battle review too. Oh yeah. You know, there was that sense where on one hand, um, you know, you as a man, a man is, uh, hardwired to sin in this way Mm. um but on at the same time any attempt if you do not struggle with this sin then you might be something there's something wrong with you because god has also designed men on purpose to be this way and so both things are kind of held together do you see this in other writings as well is this just a feature yeah no i I do think that there is a fundamental incoherence to the purity movement, right? And I think, I mean, to put it in theological terms, I think it's because it's a form of idolatry, right? That they're putting virginity in the place of God or like the perfect sex life in the place of God. Um, And they're not really grounding it in what it's really like to be a human being in relationship with other people, right? They're not grounding it in a really solid understanding of any of the sciences, obviously, right? Like they're not taking seriously any insights from like sociological research or medical research or just what it's like to be a person. Um, Again, this this book is targeting young girls who probably don't have much experience at this point. And it really paints breakups as just this like terrible tragedy you'll never recover from. It'll haunt you for the rest of your life. Um, Where I think most adults have been through a breakup and are aware that it's just sort of a learning, it hurts, but it's a, a learning experience, right? And you're sort of fine most of the time at the other end of it. Um, and so it's really sort of preying upon 
people who maybe don't have the life experience to sort of spot the incoherence, right? It's, it's, and it, maybe that's describing a, an agency or an intent that is a little unfair for a lot of these purity advocates. Um, but I, I, but I do think that like, it's just sort of baked in, right? Like they are not engaging with the real world on its terms and they're not really prioritizing people. They're prioritizing Mm -hmm. relationship structures that they've idealized that they've idolized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think that makes sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I never, I did not pick up on, you know, the fertility infertility dichotomy and some of the, the, the book here. What I did pick up on though, is the way in which science is employed in that kind of ad hoc weird way. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, on one hand, the culture is, is rife with, um, uh, whores and, and terrible Mm -hmm. men and, and and pregnancies and all of this. On the other hand, eighty six percent of teenage girls do not want to hear about um, safe sex education. Well, well, friends, <laughs> <laughs> how is that possible? How can both things be possible? Well, I think both things have to be possible in order for um, the vision to make sense, right? In order for the vision to make sense, everything has to be a contradiction. Um, you can't it, it, because Dana Gresh has to has to show has to show how this is both totally a totally natural obvious thing that God has done for people hmm. and um, Satan's greatest fear, which is why he tries so hard to to make us whores. Um, right. Yeah. The the sort of grab bag use of secular sources actually really reminds me of, so a, another podcast that I listen to a lot is Knowledge Fight. Um, I don't know if you yes. are familiar. Yeah. So for maybe listeners who aren't as familiar, Knowledge Fight um, listens to Alex Jones and sort of uh, mm. deconstructs his rhetoric and how, and, and deconstructs his claims. But one of the things he, that Alex Jones does a lot is whenever there's a mainstream source that could be read in such a way as to support his narrative, he'll selectively grab onto that and be like, hey, look, this supports, you know, this narrative we've constructed. Look, even even the mainstream is admitting it. And Dana Gresh pulls a really similar move where anytime there's research that she can sort of employ to say, look, even this secular source is admitting that this is true. Um, she, it, It's almost like it lends a sort of credibility and weight to, to be able to say, like, look, even the enemy agrees they can't deny this, but then just ignore everything else that doesn't that doesn't confirm your narrative. Um, yeah, I don't have any else anything else to say other than to agree that like that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So, if, do we want to move on to the next thing? Because I've got I've got bullet points. Oh yeah, no, we're ready. Please. We're ready. Take us. Um, another thing I think is important to talk about here is the sort of victim blaming, which is a another really common thing um, in purity literature, right? The like, I mean, it's the classic, what were you wearing move? Um, but we get another, you know, put your Christian Twitter bingo cards up, everyone. Uh, we do get a Bathsheba was at fault story. Oh my gosh. Yes. Classic. Yeah. She shouldn't have been bathing on her own property. She shouldn't have been. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we get, we get stories, um, from like readers that are not responded to well here from Dana. 
Um, I'm kind of curious though, because reading this, I was like, okay, well, obviously, you know, these people are not having good responses when someone comes up, comes to them and says, you know, I experienced, um, like I experienced child sexual abuse. Right. Right. Um, so I never got a chance to be pure. What does this narrative mean for me? Um, I'm kind of curious for, since you both have worked as pastors, um, did you get training on how to deal with that? And how would you, like, how do you think maybe would it be a better response if a congregant does come to you and disclose that they were abused as a child? Oh, I have a lot uh, to say on this topic. Uh, but Ethan, did you get any training on how to handle this? I took a, an elective class. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything I was, I had to take on um, like family and relationship pastoral care. Uh, and we got a little bit of that in that. What did they tell you to do? Oh, Cedric Johnson and, and Cedric Johnson took a, like more of like a, um, like psychoanalyst. Cause that's part of his background, like approach. And so, but, and so he gave us some like preliminary training on, you know, like kind of initial, like, this is how you might listen or talk or, you know, be present. Mm -hmm. But then he basically just says, you need to refer this person to a actual professional, <laughs> not, yeah. not yourself. So uh, I, in other words, I didn't get like comp comprehensive, you know, caregiving training on that. Yeah. I think um, the, the basic well-trained pastor response to uh, someone disclosing childhood sexual abuse is uh, to listen to affirm, to believe mm -hmm. them, to like, you know, do all those, do all those good things. Um, and to like, thank them for trusting you with their story. And to also say that like, there is likely hurt and pain here that is beyond what I can care for. Refer, refer, refer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Send them to somebody else. You can have, I think the rule of thumb is like three sessions on like the same spiritual topic. And if it goes beyond that, really, this is for the care of somebody else uh, mm -hmm. more than what you're trained for. As a, um, and I've talked about this, I'm sure on the podcast, as we've talked about the purity movement, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. The first purity lock-in that I went to at my church, they did the apple thing where they, um, the leader takes an apple and like takes a bite out of it and you pass it around the circle and everybody takes a bite out of the same apple. Um, and it gets back to the leader and the leader is like, now this apple is you, it's your body, it's your virginity, it's yourself. Um, and every time you have sex, it's like taking a bite out of the apple. Do you want to give your husband this apple core or do you want to give them the full apple? And I like being 11 or 12 and already having like gone through se childhood sexual abuse was like, mm -hmm. well, like my apple's already bitten. So what I have to do is find a husband who will accept my like moldy rotten apple because I can't mm -hmm. fix it. Right. Like that's what it is. And that shaped like my self-understanding until I mean, like forever. <laughs> right. Like it's something that I still work on in therapy. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I both believed that I needed to wait on God to like give me a husband and I had to pray extra hard that God would give me a husband who would like be understanding of my situation since I wasn't uh, what, yeah. what any man would really want on their wedding day. 
And so whoever was supposed to be like trained to help me with that <laughs> was not available <laughs> at all. Um, and I think if I, if there was somebody who had gone through the purity movement and also had gone through childhood sexual abuse, which like, I would assume that there's not a small number of people who have been sexually abused, manipulated, raped in purity world because it's just rife for that, yeah. for sexual violence. Um, but like my my first kind of like pastoral thought, in addition to getting them into therapy and care and making sure they're in a safe situation, uh, my first like theological thought would be to undo what the purity movement has done, which is to say that like mm-hmm. you are your sexual history um, and to just like fully separate that <laughs> and be like that is not at all where your worthiness is. Right. And this book fully places your worthiness in your virginity. Yes. And that's what the, the pearl of great price is. That's one of the like seven steps or rules or whatever is you are only worthy if you are pure. So be pure. Um, and you that's the big thing you have to undo. Yeah. Yeah. The the move that Gresh and a lot of others end up trying to make is like, well, it's okay. Like Jesus makes you whole, but it's a very like it's a very band-aid response, right? Like it's not it's not doing what you're saying, right? Like, well, we need to shift where we understand our value is coming from. It's just sort of saying, like, uh, patch it up, whatever. Uh, you know, Jesus forgives sins, so we don't really need to think critically about what we're teaching or like if what we're teaching is helpful or not just unhelpful but as you're saying like actively harmful yeah 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 and like I it's funny being a woman in ministry because women who have not had a female pastor will disclose things to you that they would never say to a male pastor Mm. like the number of women who disclosed abuse within their marriage or abuse in their life to me is astounding to me women who I did not have deep relationships with you know like I would be driving somebody somewhere and they'd be like well you know my husband held a gun to my head and I would be like what is happening like they're really just waiting for a safe space to talk about the violence that has been done to them um and and it's so much more difficult to know that like of this, of the generation of women who went through like the height of the purity movement, not only do they have just the regular violence that's done against women in our world, but they have this added layer of this is all my fault. I deserved this. I earned this. I am worthless because of this and this and this thing. Um, it, it makes pastoral care really difficult. And it like honestly makes me think that like all pastors need, need one need to go to therapy for themselves, but like maybe we need to get training. Yes. Therapists, because like the problems are too big. We at least need to be able to triage more effectively. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised, uh, disappointed to hear that, um, you know, training on how to deal with this kind of disclosure is, is an elective and not a core part of, um, what you had to learn. I mean, you get a little bit of it in, um, everybody has to take a pastoral care class. Yeah. Um, and so you get kind of basics and a lot of the stuff, but I think, I think Ethan's right in saying that like a really, ro- a more robust understanding is something that you would have to take an elective for, yeah. but like, 
we are like first line on so many aspects of care. We talk about pastors being like the last general practitioners. Like Mm -hmm. you are the person who helps somebody get what they need in order to like fix their falling in front porch. And also you are beside them when their child dies, you know, like it's, there's this whole range of things that you need to be capable for. And there's honestly just like not enough time (laughs) to do all of it. Oh man, that's that's such a, a heavy range of things to have to deal with. Um, I I want to address quickly because um, I think that you know you're talking about like people are coming with this this extra harm of the theology they're being taught, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of purity advocates would try to say, you know. Um, well, this is all kind of, it's really like more about the spiritual side, right? Like it's about your heart, your heart posture, whatever. Um, and I think, I think Gresh would say that to an extent as well. Um, but I think there's really been an effort to kind of hide just how literal they kind of are about the virginity thing, right? So something you were talking about sort of the, like the bad exegesis and the heresies here. Something that Gresh uh, describes later on in the book, I think it's on page 128, if you have the book with you, um, she has this idea of the four blood sacrifices. Oh my God. Yes. yes. <laughs> this is right after she explains what the hymen is, right? Yes. So this is both medically inaccurate and like, not just blasphemous, but like creatively blasphemous, I want to say. So Gresh has these four blood sacrifices um, and we go from the sort of sacrifice of animals in the Hebrew Bible to circumcision to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) From the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the breaking of the hymen on the wedding night, which just, wow, what a transition. I mean, you know, both um, both genital sets do get involved in these blood sacrifices. So that's something. That is true. That is true. I don't know how Jesus would feel about being thrown on this list. Um, I mean, Jesus was asexual, um, yes. except except in his mystical form, and then he is a lesbian. But that's. Ooh, I'm I'm firmly in the camp of the historical Jesus was asexual, but I have not heard this uh, mystical form being a lesbian take. That's just the uh, the all all the different mystics uh, who are nuns uh, talk about uh, uh, you know like pleasuring Jesus's side wound. Yes, yes, <laughs> which is always which is always depicted basically as a vagina. But uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. is a pastor and is a part of the disruptive disciples podcast network our theme song is written by joe shulmolf performed by joe shulmolf ian oriola and paul oriola and produced by paul oriola rate review and subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice find us across the social internet at wthiap and visit us at wthiap.com to get connected to our patreon merch playlists and more And a special thanks to our Patreon subscribers, who are Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Robins Langenstein, Annalise, and Ian. Thank you for your money. It helps make the show happen. It really does. And thanks for listening. And remember, friends, always stay vertical.